Welcome to They Came From Outer Space, a radio program where we talk to filmmakers and buffs and scientists about their favorite sci-fi film and how it relates to their own work and today's wild world. I'm filmmaker Cameron Kitt, also known here on WRIR as DJ Lilas, and you're listening to WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Indie Radio. I'm here today with Dr. Tanya Harrison, aka Tanya of Mars, to talk about Ridley Scott's The Martian. This will come as quite a shock to my crewmates and to NASA and to the entire world. But I'm still alive. Surprise. Tanya, thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Should I say Dr. Tanya? Should I say Tanya of Mars? What do you prefer? Oh, just Tanya. Tanya is fine. In 2015, you got your doctorate? Uh, 2016. It still feels weird, even though it's been like five years. But uh, there's certain settings, like I'm in a hotel right now, and when I turn on the television, it says like, welcome, Dr. Tanya Harrison. I'm like, oh, that is kind of cool. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> You're like, mm. Well, um, I did read your thesis. Uh, oh, my I read God. About, yeah. <laughs> and I have to say, very. I've read, I've probably read 15 theses in my life and skimmed many more it was very well written for a layman I really appreciate that like oh thank it, you 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 took the time to explain what a gully was and all the other kinds of formation for those of you who don't know Dr. Tanya Harrison also known on Twitter as at Tanya of Mars T-A-N-Y-A uh, is a geomorphologist sci-fi geek and professional Martian she's the pinnacle of space cool in the flesh after her PhD in geology from the University of Western Ontario she worked on multiple NASA Mars missions, telling the Curiosity and Opportunity rovers, as well as satellites, I assume, where to take pictures so that we can learn more of the wet history of our red planet, who is our neighbor. Today, she works at Planet Labs as a geoscientist. In her free time, she writes, tweets, and speaks about our neighboring planet Mars. She also co-founded something called the Zed Factor Fellowship, which connects students from underrepresented backgrounds with paid internships in aerospace. So cool. And I was lucky enough to meet her at Awesome Con after a panel she did about the future of human spaceflight, where she shared that she was a lover of the movie The Fifth Element. Dr. Tanya, welcome and thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, now I'm going to ask. <laughs> Why did you choose The Martian? It should be obvious. <laughs> yeah, I think from my bio, it's pretty obvious, but uh, not just because I'm a Mars expert, but because historically most Mars movies are really bad like not just in the science but as movies like Mission to Mars not a good movie Red Planet not a good movie so it was so refreshing wait I'm sorry Total Recall though okay Total Recall that that one that gets a pass (laughs) okay so most most but not all Mars movies have been terrible and so um I mean, I had read the book, The Martian, long before the movie came out. And then when I saw it was being made into a movie, I was like, one, this is amazing. But two, I'm very confused that they picked Matt Damon to star in it. And I mean, he he blew the role away. Like, I, I did not even know what to expect. And like, it was just so refreshing as a Mars person to see a Mars movie that was one, good in terms of like the science and two, good as a movie. Like, my mom went to go see The Martian in the theater and she's not the kind of person that would generally go and watch a sci-fi movie in the theater so it's it had like this mass appeal that made me really happy and also helped me get the social media platform that i have today which was totally unexpected so glad everybody likes mars here's the rub it's going to be four years for another mission to reach me 
and I'm in a hat designed to last 31 days. So I gotta make water and grow food on a planet where nothing grows. But if I can't figure out a way to make contact with NASA, then none of this matters anyway. We've got an incoming message. My God. <laughs> Mark Watney is still alive. Woo! In your face, Neil Armstrong. Yeah, I mean, it's it's true. I think it's it's easy to take it for granted that it's just so solid, right? And it is so accessible. Like, it's the kind of movie you can show in a, in a biology class or the kind of movie you can watch with your friends. Like, that's really challenging. And I read a lot of interviews with Ridley Scott, and he said it was such a relief to do a movie that was hard sci-fi that was real. He's like, it was such a relief not to do a fantasy. And you can <laughs> kind of tell. He's like, oh, they all there's like so much how do I say this? Um, reference footage to work from, yeah. right? So um, you felt it sounds like you approve of most of it because I'm I really want to get into it by asking about these gullies. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> let's talk about gullies. You ended your thesis in your conclusion, you say that the results that you went through about charting all the different gullies of Mars, how they flow, where they are, kind of the formation, what I guess that's what geomorphology is, right? How things are shaped mm -hmm. on Earth or on a planet are significant because one, they were carved by water and two, some characteristics of present day gully activities, just the involvement of water on Mars today. That's pretty huge, right? Um, pretty big deal. What was the response to your thesis? Um, well, this was an idea that had been thrown around for maybe a decade or so beforehand, or gosh, yeah, more than that even, because when we discovered gullies in the first place, uh, we knew that they were very geologically young, so tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of years. And then in 2006, we actually found gullies that were active on Mars today, and that threw everybody through a loop because we thought, wait a minute, these things look like they're carved by water, so if there's something happening in them now, there's there's got to be some water around, but the air pressure on Mars is too low and the temperature is too cold for liquid water to hang around, at least for more than maybe a few minutes to a few hours under like super specific conditions. And so there's been a big debate between is this actually something that's happening because of water or is this something that's like dry landslides? Um, but there's a lot of characteristics. I mean, you read hundreds of pages of stuff that I wrote that explain why this, these aren't dry. It's, um, it's like 115. It's not hundreds. It's about 100. It's, it's very digestible. <laughs> I really like how many pictures you have comparing like uh, images on Earth, dunes on Earth, the way that things, you, you did a lot of graphics. That's Well, and that's what's really key about the idea of geomorphology. Like, it, like you said, it is shapes. I joke that my PhD is essentially in shapes. And so awesome. rather than writing blocks of text at you trying to explain what I'm saying, the goal was let's just put it in pictures. Let me draw arrows on things and show you this is telling you this. This is telling you this. And that that's such a valuable thing. And I remember when I took the the main part of my thesis to publish it as a paper, the, the response from the reviewers in the journal were, can you cut down the number of figures? Because I think it had something like 29 or 30 figures in the paper. No. Usually you might have like 10. I wrote yeah. back and I said, no, every single one of these is very critical to illustrating the point that I'm trying to say. And they backed off. So it's probably one of the most figure heavy papers you'll run into, but it's so important to be able to illustrate these things. Yeah. And, and so had you worked with NASA before that you worked with that, you worked with NASA after you got your um, PhD. Is that right? Like after this paper? Uh, I did it before and after. So before, and like I actually got into studying gullies 
because of my job before I started my PhD. So um, after I finished my master's degree, uh, I had originally planned on getting a PhD, but my grad school experience was kind of miserable. So I was like, do I want to subject myself to this anymore? So I started applying for jobs and I got a job at this NASA subcontractor that builds cameras for Mars missions. And so I started out working in operations for cameras on a satellite called the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter that's been at Mars since 2006. And it, it actually still operates today. Like Ooh, for the most part, it's still entirely that's functional. As old as my, that's as old as my Toyota RAV4, which still <laughs> operates today as well. <laughs> you were able to point the cameras and take pictures. And that's what got you into the gullies. Or at least you were working yeah, like. One of the things that I had been assigned to do actually was monitor gullies to look for change. And at one point, the the spacecraft actually went into safe mode for four months, which was really stressful because we all thought we were going to, like, if the spacecraft dies, your your job is like you're contracted on specific missions. So if the mission dies, you could potentially be out of a job. Oh. And like every day we're like, did they regain contact? And they oh, didn't. So you and just so... show up to work and what? Just wait? Well... So I decided to put that time to use by going through every picture that we had ever taken before I started working on these cameras. It had been in orbit for about a year before I came onto the mission. So uh, I said, you know what? I'm just going to start mapping where all the gullies are because I have nothing else to do. And I thought they were really cool. And so I, I mapped these all out. And then when I decided to go back to school to get a PhD, um, I said, well, this is the project I've worked on the most. It's a thing I, I'm most interested in. So I showed my potential advisor like what I wanted to work on. He said, sounds great. Um, so then I kept mapping them after that. And eventually just that's what I became known for in the Mars community. I was the gully girl. Everybody asked gully for my map. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember there's that heat map of the sizes and color from blue to orange. And I was like, that is at, that is got to be months of work in that one map of Mars. It's, you know, like the heat map version. So that's so interesting, though, because how rare is it to have a PhD thesis handed to you because you were already working on it, right? Like, I don't know how rare that is. Maybe it's not that rare. But um, so that really makes sense. All the, all the images you had that they allowed you to have access to to write your paper. Um, and then it came out kind of close to when the Martian came out. The Martian came out uh, late October that year. How did, were you, were you like instinctively picking out any landscape shots and picking them apart when you watched it? Yeah. Cause some of them I recognized immediately, like they used a lot of actual photos of Mars. And so there's like one shot and you're like, Oh, that's definitely from Mars express. Um, and they've got some other images where you're like, Oh, that's definitely from the high rise camera. Cause there's very, like each camera that's on the different satellites around Mars has like distinctive characteristics that I don't, I don't know if most people would notice, but people that look at pictures of Mars all the time can probably tell pretty quickly, like what camera an image is from. So it was cool to see those kind of things pop up for sure. Were there any bad, bad ones? Um, not, not from the photos, but I did think that like in the opening shots where they're kind of, uh, flying in through what's supposed to be Acidalia planitia. It's like, there's a lot of features here, but Acidalia is a very flat, kind of boring area. Right. So it's, it doesn't look nearly as interesting as what they, they put in the film. Um, so that, that was like the one. There are places on Mars that certainly would look like that, but probably not where they said they landed. 
Yeah, I think that's a recurring theme, which is making Mars, this sounds going to sound so bad, making Mars more interesting <laughs> so the movie's more exciting, right? Um, that happens a couple times where we're, we're kind of anteing up in a film, in, in a story, you need a lot of heightened action at all times. So adding more features, making it more dramatic. I know that they shot a lot of the actual walking scenes in the Wadi Rum Desert in Jordan. And I'm, I don't know how many of that, but I know that the studio that did all the landscapes is called MPC. So I was wondering if you could give them a rating on how well they did. Are they, do you do you know if they were able to just pull all this stuff from public domain? Or do you think they had to actually reach out to NASA and say, can we please get some high-res photos of Mars? Well, anything that's taken by NASA is a public domain image. So if you go on and you find pictures from you know, the Mars rovers websites or um, any of the, the spacecraft websites, uh, you, you can use that any way that you want, which is pretty cool. Like this is something that's funded by your taxpayer dollars. And so you get access to that data. Um, it's a little, some of the websites, they even go out the same day. So like if you go right now to the Perseverance website, for example, you'll see the most recent images taken by the rover and the helicopter ingenuity, like basically as quickly as anybody on the team does. It's a little That's different for awesome. missions from other countries. They, they're not necessarily as quick to release data, but generally speaking, they're out there with like a Creative Commons type license. And so you can credit it in the, the credits of the film and still use them. Whoa, mars.nasa.gov out first. It's, here's some Mars Perseverance raw image of the week. They're, these are so cool. So no, they didn't have to ask. That makes so much sense now. Why in the film, when they really, when they have those two satellite images, that's like a big turning point when they realize that Mark Watney's character is alive. Where Kristen Wiig's character says, "We only have, we technically only have a day before, or two days before we have to release them." I, I thought that I thought that was faked for the point of the story. So you're, I'm, I'm hearing that's that's NASA canon. Yeah, it's totally real. We don't, uh, I think people assume like, oh, they're going to hide pictures of aliens and this or that, but it's totally <laughs> not true. Like the rover images go out in 24 hours. The satellite images tend to be slower. Um, like they're they're all released in these like three or six month batches uh, rather than releasing them a few at a time. So usually they'll just be like a giant release of all the images that were taken for the, the previous three to six month period. I can't get over this. I'm looking at, you can have raw or color release, color process. It's like seeing the day in the life of the Perseverance rover. Like It's like their camera roll. Like, here's where I went today. It's really, a, it's kind of amazing. I can't believe I didn't know that. I've watched all the landings because, you know, nerd family. And I know that that's actually kind of leaning into what got you into this field. Um, but first, I wanted to go back a little bit to just just picking apart the planet and, and a, a little bit of this stuff. You know, you talked about something that was important to you when we first discussed doing this movie, something that all scientists kind of cringe at, something that Andy Weir has repented for, and that's the, the dust storm. <laughs> I'll let yes. you get into it, but first I need to remind everyone that you're listening to WIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Indie Radio. I am Cameron Kitt. This is the show They Came From Outer Space, and I'm here talking with Dr. Tanya Harrison, Tanya of Mars, about the film The Martian from 2015. I guarantee you that at some point, everything's going to go south on you. Ready? And you're going to say, this is it. This is how I end. Commander, Mark is dead. We have to go. Okay, so why is it so weird to have a really intense storm on Mars? 
So Mars is kind of infamous for its global dust storms, I think, in pop culture. But the atmosphere is so thin that there's not a lot of oomph behind those storms. It's more like if you shake up a snow globe and then you are waiting for all that snow to settle back out onto the, the surface of the inner part of the globe. It's kind of the same thing on Mars. The wind kicks up this really fine grained dust that's kind of the consistency of like talcum powder. And then those particles are so small, it kind of floats around. And so like when we have the rovers on Mars and there's dust storms, we're not so concerned about the storm itself per se. It's the fact that a lot of our missions like pre-curiosity and pre-perseverance were powered by solar panels. I guess actually there's a, a lander from NASA and a rover from China, both on Mars right now that are powered by solar panels. So if you have dust in the air, that's cutting down the amount of sun that's getting to your panels to charge up the batteries. So the dust itself isn't like damaging the rover, generally speaking. Um, the wind isn't going to blow the rover away or like knock anything over. It's not going to pick up an antenna and impale it through a person like Mark Watney. There's just not that much force behind the wind, but it does put all this crud in the air. And then we basically just have to sit there and wait for the dust to settle out back onto the ground. Um, and in the meantime, you know, we'll, we'll take some precautions, like try not to use too much power so the rovers don't overextend their batteries and stuff like that. It seemed like if they were hinting that it was something like 200 miles an hour, right? That would never happen yeah. because they they're like, this is going to blow this rocket over. Like, this is very unrealistic, guys. <laughs> <laughs> the the trivia I read on IMDb said, it's like, it's more like a light breeze on a summer day. <laughs> I was like, oh, but I understand why they did that in the film. I totally get it, right? You have to have a reason that he gets lost, a reason that he gets left behind that's plausible. You have to add up the ante and then you know, so also the scene where his, by the way, there's going to be complete spoilers in this <laughs> podcast. If you if you are not down with spoilers, you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to them on Spotify. Um, but some studies show that light spoilage actually increases your enjoyment. So if you somehow haven't seen this movie, I highly recommend still listening. Um, there's a scene where his hab blows open, right? Would that happen in, on Mars? Is that possible? Definitely. Everything where you have people living inside, it's pressurized because we have to combat the fact that the air pressure on Mars is too low for us to walk around like we do on the Earth. So um, when the hab explodes, it's mostly because of an air pressure problem. And it's just so you've got higher pressure inside the hab and lower pressure in just the Mars atmosphere. I thought that part had a really good, um, I guess, kind of like rising action, right? You, you were really excited. Everything was going well. And then his only food supply gets completely destroyed because it's average minus 60 degrees Fahrenheit on Mars, which immediately <laughs> turns. I immediately started Googling, like, how long can a human live? How cold can we experience? And I don't think it, it's not the cold that would kill you if you had to take your helmet off. It, how long would it take and what would you die of if you accidentally were somehow just in the nude? Uh, I think the air pressure would be the thing or the lack of air pressure would be the thing to kill you. It's basically... The air pressure on the surface of Mars is the equivalent of being at 130,000 feet here on the Earth. So, like, people who have a hard time staying alive even on top of Mount Everest without things like supplemental oxygen. So, And that's, like, like 5,000 feet, right? That's uh, – Mount, uh, Mount Everest oh. is 32,000 yes. feet, something like that. Okay. Yeah. So not doable. That's where yeah. – is it lower than when planes pass at 130,000 feet? Maybe? 
Um, planes, yeah, you could, I think, around a max of like 40,000. So, and like if you're flying in an airplane too, for example, airplanes are, are pressurized. So if you get like a hole in the fuselage or something, it's a bad day for an airplane. Um, yeah. People, so same kind of thing on Mars. Hollywood really loves hole in the fuselage. So I've seen quite a bit of that. <laughs> I don't know how many of them are realistic. But yeah, I think it's really hard to understand. I also remember when I learned about the atmosphere, it's really... You know, when you, I learned, I was in fifth grade when the ozone layer was a really hot topic, the hole in the ozone layer, you remember that? Yeah. And I didn't realize, I just thought it was a bubble like everyone else, but actually it just fades into nothing, right? There is no hard line for our atmosphere. It just kind of dips out. Like, is that correct? Um, maybe yeah. Maybe dips out is a scientific term. You can kind of see it too. Like if you look at pictures from space that are taken, not like straight down of the earth, but like what we call a limb view, you can actually see the the thickness of the atmosphere and you kind of see it fade off and it, it really highlights how thin it is. And we have limb views of Mars as well, which is really cool. Like you don't often get to see the atmosphere, but you just have this little tiny blue line just hanging above the edge. You're like, wow, I'm looking at the atmosphere on another planet. And it, that's the only thing between you and the void. And there's so much less between you and the void on Mars, right? Yes. <laughs> and and that, that poses a major problem for manned missions, which we are planning, you know, the way that I, from what I read from the trivia, this is pretty close in line with the way that NASA is planning manned missions to Mars. I don't know if you can speak to that, but, you know, we're, planning, yeah. we're trying to get there, right? It's pretty realistic in terms of like, you know, they sent some stuff ahead of time to make sure that, they didn't have all their, their eggs in one basket because, you know, if something went wrong on like the Ares mission where you have the crew and maybe something happens to the hab along the way, well, you don't want the crew to get there and they're just all, like already destined to be screwed. So there, there have been a lot of plans from like SpaceX, for example, they want to send a few starships in advance, um, maybe even some like autonomous robots that start constructing things like landing pads so that when humans do come, there's at least something there waiting for them. Um, so that's, we're definitely going to have to do something like that because, you know, we've only, when we go back and forth to the space station, that's generally, you know, a few hours to maybe a day to get there. Going back and forth to the moon is like a four day trip, but you know, this movie does a really good job of emphasizing how hard it is to get to Mars. Like right off the bat, Watney is like, they can't send me anything for four years. And that's super realistic. So it's like, yeah, you got to make sure that you have enough backup supplies in case anything goes wrong to make it to that next supply window. And they showed that because he did, mm -hmm. he, he uses that. And uh, gosh, the ending is so good. Just uh, <laughs> one of my questions is like, would you go to Mars if Jessica Chastain was your captain? Oh my gosh. I mean, I want to go to Mars in general, but that would be <laughs> That's like those questions where it's like, would you do blank for a billion dollars? And it's like, yeah, of course. Like the answer is yes already. But Jessica Chastain is so <laughs> perfect in this movie. Um, the thing that I couldn't stop thinking about from a science nerd perspective was gravity. So I know that Martian gravity is a lot less than ours. And I know that Venus is way more similar. And that's why I've watched a, a lot of weird YouTube videos about like why we should actually terraform venus which would be way harder um but how do you feel like they did handling the idea i mean martian gravity is 40 percent of earth's right 37 something like that like yeah i think that's kind of an outstanding question because we've never spent much time in anything other than like lunar gravity which is like 11 percent of earth so very very low and then microgravity on the space station so 
um, I've heard from my friends that have gone on there. There's this, this company called zero G that takes you on flights that they advertise that you experience microgravity, but you also get to go through lunar and Martian gravity. Um, And so I've asked my friends that did those flights, what does Martian gravity feel like? And they said, well, imagine being able to do a push up to standing without much effort. I was like, oh, that actually sounds kind of cool. But since you're on a plane, you don't really get to walk. So it's hard to know what the walking around would look like. Yeah, well, I I mean, I know that on the ISS, limited gravity means you have to do a lot more workouts, keep your bones stable, all the things that we don't understand. I mean, one of the studies I was reading said low, low gravity on Mars could have an impact on our ability to see. Like there's a lot of stuff we don't know yet, right? Like how, how much gravity we need for our eyeballs to work. But I couldn't stop picking around. I was like, he doesn't look floaty enough. I couldn't stop thinking about it. I was like, I need more bouncy bounce. But maybe I'm expecting what you were saying, which is lunar gravity, where I'm expecting those kind of big jumps that I remember seeing from astronauts who land on, on the moon. So maybe that I know that they spent a lot of time shooting in a low frame rate to try and make everything look bouncy. I don't know if you know about this. Oh, I didn't know that. It caused a huge problem <laughs> for everyone. It's like wow. number one, never shoot in different frame rates. But yeah, they shot they shot in 48 frames per second when you're supposed to shoot in 24 so that you have way more footage so everything can like be slowed down and sped up. But they had a really hard time syncing the audio to his lips because they you can't shoot audio in in half frame rate per second um so they ended up having him like dub and narrate a lot of stuff to make up for that um they also i gotta go back and rewatch some of those like exterior shots where he's walking around now and like see how noticeable that is i the only time i noticed where they really seemed to pay attention to the idea of the gravity and the bounce really working was when he's moving all the packs out of the hab after it's broken and i saw a little bit of a thing bouncing but that was that was my only qualm is, you know, could have used a little more bouncy bounce. But everything else was really, it did feel like, it's great to hear it from you. It did feel very realistic so much so that I was pretty bought in the whole time. Now, <laughs> you actually worked at NASA. You, you now work at Planet Labs. A lot of the story also takes place between NASA, other agencies, JPL, and scientists working. How realistic was that, you know, those interactions, do you think? Very realistic. There's there's a lot of bureaucracy, like things that you think should be simple, like we can just help each other. Like, no, it doesn't work that way, especially when politics are involved. Um, and like trying to get every, like all of those boardroom scenes where they're trying to make decisions on what to do, also very realistic. You know, it you just have so many people that have to be involved in the decision-making process that sometimes it feels like you're not accomplishing anything. I feel like mm. this shouldn't surprise anybody when it comes to like something related to the government. Like, yeah, government any friend, any quickly. Yes. <laughs> I, I do have a friend who works in a government agency, and some of the stuff she sells me makes me very sad. But it's understandable, right? You're working with thousands of other people, um, and you're all trying to achieve a goal. I, I liked how they kept it. I don't know. Um, first, the only thing I would say is like, is everyone that hot? <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of hot people in that boardroom. Um, and I love, I love I the Sean Bean like, Oren Rush. Yeah. Yeah. I was amazed at like the, the caliber of actors that they got yes. for every single role, even like the smallest of roles. Like, I'm just curious about how the whole movie came together. Like, I don't know. I, no, I think none of these people are people that I would expect to be in a sci-fi movie. And then suddenly it's like this massive blockbuster with people like, Matt Damon and Kristen Wiig and Sean Penn. You're like, what? <laughs> and I think, actually, I, I need to know if Interstellar came out before or after this. I think Interstellar came out 
around the same time. It might have been 2014. I think. Yeah, I think it was before. I think things have. I think that movie had a big impact on it. Like, oh, suddenly sci-fi can be serious and can be, you know, Oscar contending, right? Where it hadn't been before. Yeah. Before it was that John Travolta movie. You know the one I'm talking about, where he's got the weird wig. Yeah. (laughs) Battlefield Earth will like forever set us back so long. I mean, and sci-fi <laughs> is inherently really hard to do. It can, it's, it's really easy to be cheesy, you know. And I think the reason this movie worked is Ridley Scott. He's got such a good track record, and this movie was his highest-grossing movie to date. Um, really, I didn't know that. Yeah, it was. It did good, and it, they did a really. <laughs> the studio did a really good job. They moved the release date up about a month, which was very stressful because editing but it turned out they actually didn't have that much cgi to do it's just like throw in a couple plates behind him so i was really i was like oh yeah i guess there's no monsters there's no aliens right like you don't you think when you think sci-fi oh there's got to be all this extra stuff you know they had to do the explosion on the ship but they moved it up and i think four days before the release there was a big discovery of briny water on mars so that helped really boost i don't know if you remember this but of course they were riding the wave. Really Scott was saying he was kind of sad when they had that big release of, he was like, man, I wish we could have worked something like that in where Matt Damon's character discovers a glacier and he's like, there's so much stuff that we could have done involving water. What are your thoughts on that? That would have been pretty cool. Uh, He probably, he wouldn't have been in a good area to find either the briny water or glaciers, unfortunately, like the latitude that he landed at. Um, but it would have been cool if he like even just made some kind of mention of it because then it, that's just another point for people to bring up because like I think when a lot of the public learned that this movie was pretty scientifically accurate, it generated so many questions from people. I mean, like this kind of stuff you're asking here. And so like any little detail, any other details that you can add in that that people can ask about, like, wait, did we actually find briny water on mars what's that about and you're like oh hold on. let me tell you this is really cool so Sit scientists down. all those are, are great little <laughs> tidbits to have in there <laughs> yeah do you would you say that this movie actually might help shore up funding or like like does public interest actually play a role in how much funding mars gets in nasa absolutely it's uh for nasa in general the more that the general public cares about space the more likely it is that the government will put funding toward it because they know that it it gets them brownie points with the public um and so i think that this is a weird reason yeah i mean there's lots of politics involved as well and you know support oh sorry there's sirens going off here um and you know interests of you know companies that are based in different um uh jurisdictions of like different senators and stuff like that but in general, like if if the public is really hyped about space, then there's like incentive to fund NASA as opposed to if everybody is like hating on space, then the government will probably say, oh, it's bad for us optically to do more space stuff. So let's take that money and put it towards something else. So go watch more space movies to get more funding for NASA very indirectly. <laughs> I did look at your you have a bookshop page um, where you have your recommended science fiction and your and your you know space nonfiction. I have to say, I'm really glad that I, I went and rewatched this movie because I tend to lean towards the soft sci-fi, the alien, you know, I, I, I tend more towards the fantastical. But watching this, I do think it's important to not just romanticize, but action adventure up what is real because there is so much incredible stuff 
in space, period. And so um, I kind of got on that vein. I was like, wow, all of this could happen. And that made me so much more excited to go do all the things you're saying, go look up things, go pester scientists such as yourself. You say you get a lot of questions from this movie and it's been out, you know, for gosh, six years, seven years, six years now. Um, what's the question you wish you got more? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I honestly can't think of anything. Like most people ask about the dust storm. A lot of people ask about um, if he could have used Pathfinder the way that he does to communicate with Earth. And that was definitely a nod that a lot of the people on the Pathfinder team thought was really nice. Um, we actually had a group viewing of a bunch of people from the Curiosity team. We rented a movie theater in Pasadena and like went as a group for a private showing of The Martian. And so we had folks there like from the Pathfinder and Sojourner teams. And I, I really wish that someone had filmed this or we had at least recorded the reaction audio for like, like a, a thing that you could watch overlaid with the movie because we were like shouting out things. Like Aww. there's a scene where people are like walking through JPL and it looks all super futuristic. This must be like the Hungarian film studio. I think it's not filmed mm -hmm. in JPL. Mm -hmm. It looks way more futuristic than JPL does. And mm -hmm. someone in the back of the room goes, man, I wish I worked there. <laughs> yeah, I like, actually... I did notice that. I was like, there's no way American tax dollars would pay for this beautiful giant auditorium, but it's the future, right? Like, Yeah, we you can hope by then. I mean, if we have money to send people to Mars, then NASA's got to have some funding. <laughs> well, this is like the kind of reason that I do this podcast for, for, for you. The part of the thing that really got you into this is Pathfinder. Like Pathfinder solidified your decision to be a scientist when you were young, right? This landed in 1997. I read an article you wrote where you said the entire course of my life changed when pathfinder landed on mars so i'm sure you had a squee moment when he like pulled what he dust undusted it on the ground like did you react when you saw it the first time with them yeah i mean like i knew that was going to happen because i'd read the book but there was something so much more emotional about seeing it on the screen you're like oh my god of all of the missions to throw a nod to i would like pathfinder isn't one that i think is very culturally well known compared to something like viking um, right. Although I, I could be overestimating how much people even know about Viking. But uh, yeah, I just thought it was like a lovely little nod to a mission that maybe nowadays a lot of people might not be that familiar with. Yeah, I think I didn't know it was the same in the book. You're right. The book is really interesting the way he did the book. But I immediately was like, is Pathfinder a real mission? So please don't feel bad. <laughs> please don't be mad at me. I was like, is that real? Like, So yeah, all right. Could that work? the way he did it um if you hook it up I to a, a big so. a big battery and pull, turn on the 1997 old boy yeah i think because a lot of these missions it's usually something happens where um i'm trying to remember how we lost contact with pathfinder i think what happened was we sent a command that caused the communications antenna to like not point in the in quite the right direction and so like you, you think that comms like in space is really high tech, but it's not. You need to be pointed at like one satellite dish to another satellite dish to get your signal back and forth. So literally just like moving your dish in the wrong direction or like slightly at the wrong angle can totally mess up your ability to communicate with your spacecraft. Um, and it's really sad, actually. This is uh, the story almost makes me want to cry, but in like a silly way. So there was a thought that after we lost contact with Pathfinder, the lander, 
the Sojourner rover was still operational and it was, it had directions that like, if it couldn't f- make contact with the lander, cause maybe it had like driven behind a rock or something, it was supposed to drive around on its own until it like made contact again. And so we thought, oh man, the rover was probably like, mom, mom, I, no, where are you? I can't find you. I will <laughs> cry. I will cry. Like I, <laughs> I don't, you are not alone. I didn't even work on these rovers and do you remember two and a half years ago when um, I was just looking this up? Opportunity supposedly lost signal, and everybody posted oh, yeah. about it. There were these. There was one comic that was like I don't know. It was like fifty panels about its last days. Looking up, like, did I do a good job? My battery's low. It's getting dark, and I was like streaming tears. I was like, why am I crying? There's just something about. I think the fact that people had this tribute to it is like this did a good job for us. It like did good work for humanity, right? So we want to pay tribute to it. But there's something about the, yeah, the rover shutting down. We really want to anthropomorphize it down into puppy child. Is that the way that you yeah. think of it? Um. Oh, absolutely. Like, so I was working on opportunity. Not, I was in operations the week that we lost contact. And then I was oh. also at JBL the night that we said goodbye to the rover. And it was like, I, I didn't expect to be that emotional, but like, this was many months after we'd lost contact. We knew that we weren't actually probably going to regain contact that night, but we did like three rounds of send the signal, wait for that time delay, see if the rover talked back, didn't work, sent another signal, waited, didn't work. At this point, this is like nighttime JPL hours. So we're actually sending these signals through the Deep Space Network's um, Australian stations. And then the third signal goes out. And, you know, we're sitting there like, come on, Oppie, like, this will be the time. You'll oh, wake up, God, like, it'll I'm be the whole mission that could. And, of course, we didn't hear anything back. <sighs> and so the mission manager gets on the phone and he's talking to the people running the, the Deep Space Network in Australia while all the rest of the team members that had come to be there in person were up in this um, this area called the dark room, kind of looking out over mission ops. And the guy gets on the phone and he's just like, you know, I, oh God, I'm like going to cry thinking about it. He's like talking to people in Australia saying, um, you know, I want to thank you all for your 15 years of incredible service to this mission. You know, couldn't have done this without you. And then he ended the call by saying, um, so the, the acronym for the Spirit and Opportunity Mission together was the Mars Exploration Rovers or MER. So he said, this is MER signing off the net and hung up the phone. Oh. No, like, we all start bawling in the dark room. Like there's people are giving each other hugs. There's actually a documentary where there's a clip of like, they filmed me and my friend like crying in the corner, hugging each other, which is like, I, I think it's beautiful. They captured that moment, but also like really sad. And then everybody, like we, we all come out of the dark room and there was just this feeling of like, what do we do now? Like some people had literally spent the last 15 years of their life working on this rover. And when you work on rovers, it, it commands like the entire schedule of your day. And you a lot of times you're even like working around time on Mars. People like met their, their spouses on this mission. Some of them had children during the mission. Wow. The, the woman that was like our head of the mission by the time it ended was in high school when the mission started. Like, wow it affected so many people's lives and yeah we were all just in this like crying days of like what what do we go drink like what do we what do we do what do we do from here Mm -hmm. and to this day that's the only mission I've worked on 
that I've been on like through decommissioning, uh, everything else that I've been involved with is still operational. Um, luckily, but I know I'm, I'm going to have that same feeling like whenever curiosity finally stops operating or, uh, if we lose contact with Mars reconnaissance orbiter, it's just like, wow, these things are such huge pieces of your life and you, you work so hard on them even when they last way longer than they're supposed to, like it's, you're still not emotionally prepared for it to end. Yeah. And you have, it's, it's interesting. You said it's weird to get emotional about like, how can you not, right? For you, how can you not? But what I find really interesting is that non-scientist citizens, and especially like, I don't know what the word is, science citizens, people are interested, right? Feel those secondary emotions along with you. Like when I, I mean, like, my family and I, we watch NASA channels like always on. We always watch the landings and, the, and the, we always watch the takeoffs. And I cry so often. And I remember crying watching this movie. Um, always the happy tears whenever a landing, whenever a liftoff goes well. And I think it's because of those shots of the room. And it's the exact same in the movie as it is on TV. The shots of the room are what telling, are what, like, so I'm feeling your secondary emotions when we watch it. So I think it's really interesting that like, everybody else was grieving with you. Like, it's not bad that those were shared. Like we all felt those with you. So it was kind of like that moment in a midsummer where all the women are crying in a circle. <laughs> like everyone else was rippling that out. Like I didn't know it was a 90 day mission that lasted for 15 years. So yeah, the tears are from like, for like, thank you for that incredible work. And, and like all that pride, there's, it's just so interesting. It's really amazing too, how much we've done with these little robots. Um, what is it that think- we, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I was saying, the emotion side kind of ties into something else I think that this movie did really well was like showcasing personalities of people. Mm. I think, like one thing that is really unfortunate about NASA, and I understand why they have to do it again, because they're a government agency. But whenever you see like a NASA press release or an interview with astronauts, it tends to be kind of dry and not necessarily super exciting. Mm. So I love that, like, you know, the people in here are swearing and they're bantering with each other and like they gave them personalities. It's not generally speaking when you're having these meetings or like working on missions, it's not all super formal the way it comes across in like a press conference. Like we we're silly. We're people that are like really passionate about what we're doing. Um, you know, Mark Watney getting like really excited about the fact that he's a botanist. Like that's totally, totally realistic. Oh, um, what about the inter-science banter of like what is and isn't real science? Does that happen? I would say not so much like within our own group. Yeah, when he was like, oh, botany, not real science. Um, also, fun fact, Donald Glover, love his character, right? He's not in it for very much, but he plays Rich Purcell, who comes up with the idea to do the sling, which is another great way to teach people about how he's gravity assists. And yeah. I thought he did such a good job when he uses the people. I love the way that this, they dumbed down science for me. And I felt like I get it. And that always is a win. Um, but when he slips, you remember in the opening when he like wakes his first scene where he like wakes up and he slips, that was totally like, just like actually what happened. And he just kept going and they kept that cut. <laughs> so that was an, that was an not in, not, not directed move. Like he just got up and like really fell right on his face. And I think those kinds of moments, that's what stands out to me. It's like anytime you can humanize people, I'm really glad you say that because we don't humanize the people behind NASA. It's, we, we definitely humanize the rovers, but it's a lot harder to say to humanize the thousands of people behind a mission, right? And I'm glad I've never thought about it that way before. Like, yeah, it's easy to 
put emotions on this little anthropomorphized rover. But then when you think of scientists, it tends to be this very like straight laced stoic reaction. Cause I, I saw a lot of people in the public being surprised that the scientists on the mission were as emotional as we were losing this rover. And part of me was like, why are you surprised that we're sad? Like this thing that we've been working on for huge chunks of our life has ended, you know, but yeah, it was just an interesting reaction to see from the public. And I'm glad it did. We're going to take a quick break. Our service mission here was supposed to last 31 souls. For redundancy, they sent 68 souls worth of food. That's for six people. So for just me, that's going to last 300 souls, which I figure I can stretch to 400 if I ration. So I got to figure out a way to grow three years worth of food here on a planet where nothing grows. Luckily, I'm a botanist. You're listening to They Came From Outer Space, a radio program where we talk to filmmakers, buffs, and scientists about sci-fi movies. My name is Cameron Kitt. I'm talking to Dr. Tanya Harrison, a.k.a. Tanya of Mars, about the movie The Martian from Ridley Scott in 2015. So I really like that you mentioned that people met each other and married over this 15-year mission because another way that he humanized the scientists is that two of the characters who are on the Aries ended up in a relationship, and it just it didn't feel too irrational. But in terms of humanizing scientists... Um, I don't know if you want to talk about this or not, but I did read an article about how you you came out as queer as a scientist in a big talk, and that was like, very, very important for many other scientists. And uh, how long has it been since you gave that talk? You said it's been years and people are still coming up to you and talking about it. Is that because people don't want to present their full selves as scientists, you think? Yeah, so that was 2019. Um, and yeah, that... It, that was just almost a, I wasn't planning on giving that talk. I was going to give a talk about Mars and I ran into an old friend in the lobby of the hotel across the street from the venue. And I was just chatting, saying I needed to finish up my slides. And he asked what I was talking about. And he was like, Tanya, you're the first woman to give a keynote ever or an opening keynote at this conference. Like this is your opportunity to get personal. You should talk about yourself which felt really weird. I was like, uh, are you sure? Science only, no self. Yeah. yeah, I was like, they asked me to talk about Mars. I'm here to talk about Mars. So I got up on stage. I, I redid my talk like entirely in the next two hours after that conversation, got up on stage and opened it with like, I'm not going to talk to you about any of the stuff that like the, the old title says this talk was going to be about. And I just got really open about my my career path and my life. And I cried at one point. <laughs> which got a standing ovation. And then I started crying even more. And I was like, okay, I gotta, you know, compose myself to like finish this talk for all of you. And yeah, afterwards, so many people came up to me, like sharing their stories or like asking if they could meet up with me later to like talk more privately. And um, I, I had never really thought I, I'd been really open about certain aspects of my life. Like, um, having a disability. So I have a, a rare condition called ankylosing spondylitis that has definitely affected my career path in terms of like, it made going to college very difficult and, you know, I'm in the hospital a lot. So that gets in the way of work sometimes. Um, but I hadn't really thought about like the queer aspect impacting my career. 
And so for the longest time, I was like, I don't feel like I should be the person to be a, a representative of that community in science because there are so many people that are like way more overtly out of the closet than I am and have been for so long. And it like, it's directly impacted their, their life. And so I shouldn't talk about it. And then I realized after seeing the reaction from students, cause this was a conference particularly aimed at students, um, their reaction at seeing somebody that was reflective of them in this position of like achieving their dreams and having the jobs that they were hoping to get in their future. I feel like I'm rambling a little bit. <laughs> um, no, I just want to say thank you for doing it. Oh, thank you. Yeah. It's that reaction is what, to what told me that I should open up more and that I was, I almost had a responsibility to kind of be more open for the community because I didn't want other people to feel like this wasn't a place where they could be. If anything, the new space industry, like people kind of in my age bracket and younger, I think is, is really diverse and really accepting. And we're all moving toward this Star Trek idea of a better future. That's why most people are in the space sector. It's yeah. also why I hate that like the idea of space billionaires lately has kind of poison the narrative around space yeah for people that too. are not yeah it sucks it's like talk to people like me or any of my friends we will all tell you we're here because we want to like get humans to the moon we want humans to live on mars we want to make a better future for everybody we don't we're not in this for the money we're not in this to like you know self-aggrandize or anything like we're all cheerleaders for the potential of the human species and we just want to be a part of that i couldn't say it better star trek <laughs> is the reason why i'm why i think sci-fi sci is so important is we need a positive future to work towards we need that beautiful big budapest building to work towards we need those cool <laughs> sexy orange space suits to work towards like and star trek was important because it represented diversity in a way that people couldn't comprehend at that moment and i think you saying all the things that aren't great and that are personal, like your friend said, you know, I have a disability or I've had to deal with assault because I'm a woman or I'm queer, like all those things just make you human. I think that's coming back to this idea of like, we tend to see scientists in my mind as like those 60s footage of like, it's just like white man with glasses. And unfortunately, that is Mark Watney in this character, right? <laughs> he is like the typical scientist. Ridley Scott called him the perfect scientist, which I think is a really good, simple, you know, he's like Hercules the scientist, right? <laughs> but I think we need to recognize that, yeah, it's human beings who get us and there are reasons to go to space. I definitely get in arguments a lot with people about like where we should spend our money and why can't we do both. Um, so why should somebody interested in space who might be a woman or a, some, like what you're doing with your um, scholarship, somebody who might not see themselves as the typical scientist, why should they go for it? Because... Well, one, you shouldn't let other people define for you what constitutes a scientist. If you want to do that, if that is your dream, don't let anybody else stop you. And if you look and you don't see yourself reflected, we're still in kind of this phase where there are people that are the first of whatever community they're coming from to break down certain barriers. So don't be afraid to be the first. Um, and I know that can be really, really intimidating, uh, but we are working to make this community better and more inclusive and more supportive. And we want people from all different backgrounds because we, you know, when humans expanded their way around the earth, they did it 
in a really terrible way for a lot of the other people that were already in some of those places. And mm-hmm. so we want to make sure when humans start expanding to other planets, we don't make the same mistakes that we did the first time around. And so we have an opportunity right now as we're on that cusp of expanding to the moon and Mars and wherever else humans might end up to take a really good look at how we do this better. How do we make sure more people are at the table influencing these decisions, being a part of these programs if they want to, and just being more responsible about it in general. Mm -hmm. And that only happens if we have more diversity inside the program. Exactly. We can't let white men make all these decisions. <laughs> no, and or white billionaires. But I, like, it's just so cool to talk to people like you who, ta- who make such an effort to make this approachable, right? Like that's, wh- that's really what we need is, is like representation and saying, hey, look, I can do this. Hey, look, here's my paper, you know, with all of these pictures. I, you know, it just makes it, I think it always seems so inaccessible sometimes, right? Or it seems so far away, so lofty. But NASA's and, and Planet Labs and looks like you guys are really trying to make it accessible. So fortunately, we have to wrap up. My last question is, as a scientist, what tips can you give from this film to filmmakers? Like, what did this movie do right that other filmmakers should do from a science perspective? I think the biggest thing is just that it shows that you can be scientifically accurate and make a blockbuster movie. And then through that, you can inspire a bunch of people to get excited about science. And so it might seem, I don't know, like overkill to go to all the effort of being scientifically accurate. But like you said, it caused you to ask questions about some of the stuff in this. You you were invested because it was real. And so I, I think that that's really cool that we have the ability to do that through the medium of film. And we should take advantage of that more often, but not all the time, you know. It's okay to be silly. It's okay to be factually inaccurate. You know, I I don't have any actual problems that the dust storm was used as a narrative device to get the movie going. You know, I can still enjoy movies even if they're not scientifically accurate. But I mean, I still need my sandworms. Yeah. 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 Sandworms, we we can still go with those. Like, I'm totally not expecting Dune to be scientifically accurate from Mars, but it's going to be a damn good movie. Well, Dr. Tanya Harrison, Tanya of Mars, Queen of the Gullies, thank you so much. <laughs> you're so awesome. Where can I find your work? Where can we keep up with you and what you're doing? Uh, so like you can find me on Twitter as at Tanya of Mars. Uh, you can also go to my website, tanyaharrison.com, T-A-N-Y-A. Uh, and on there, you'll find writings and videos and keep up on stuff that I'm doing through there. Awesome. Well, You've been listening to They Came From Outer Space here on 97.3 FM, WRIR. I'm Cameron Kitt. We just talked about The Martian. And uh, thanks for listening. Tanya, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks so much. No matter what happens, tell the world, tell my family, and I never stop fighting to make it home. <laughs>